0: I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Today I'm very pleased to welcome nephrologist and obesity researcher Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Fung is a researcher and clinician who's achieving superb results using fasting in the treatment of both obesity and diabetes. What I think is so important about Dr. Fung's work is that he brings together critical insights on insulin resistance, the nature of long-term obesity, the weight set point and how to alter it, and the incredible value of fasting as a treatment for obesity and diabetes. Dr. Fung is the author of The Obesity Code and and co-author of The Complete Guide to Fasting, two books that I believe are essential reading for modern human beings trying to find their way back to health after significant weight gain. In this discussion, we're going to talk about insulin resistance and the failed energy balance or caloric balance approach to weight management. Importantly, we'll spend some time discussing the issue of weight set point and how we can influence and reset it. And we'll be talking about the nature of fasting and how the reality of fasting is the opposite of everything we've been told. When we fast, our metabolism speeds up. We're also going to talk about how the focus on glycemic index has confused the issue of how to treat obesity because it doesn't take into account the effects of chronic excessive fructose consumption on our health and the need for blood insulin-free periods of time to help heal insulin signaling in the human body. By the way, this is the exact same problem with the caloric deficit approach to weight loss. It doesn't help heal insulin resistance. All of this, of course, is about the dangers of the chronically high blood insulin levels being suffered by people in contemporary society, whether they are fat or thin, and it dovetails significantly with the modern habit of snacking, a habit which has been largely driven by marketing since the latter 20th century, and which seems to have been one of the critical environmental changes contributing. To the obesity epidemic. So here we go: insulin resistance and its central role in obesity. How fructose has confounded the effectiveness of the promise of low glycemic eating for weight loss, healing your weight set point, and did the marketing of snacking help create the obesity epidemic? In this episode called "The Disaster of the Culture of Constant Eating." Dr. Jason Fung, welcome.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me here.
0: It's uh, it's very exciting for me to be able to talk to you because I think you're doing some of the most exciting work on the subject of obesity out there in the whole world right now. And uh, I know I see Twitter uh, often ablaze with people talking about what you've been up to in terms of uh, actually providing real therapeutic support In obesity and one of the reasons that I wanted to actually discuss this on reinventing the supermarket is because many of the people who will be listening to this show are already in the mindset or moving into the mindset where they appreciate low-carb, whole-food diets, they're eating more and more organic, their home-prepared food is becoming more of a a, a normal routine for them, and yet they're not necessarily experiencing fat loss, even though they move into this... um, into this uh, way of eating so uh, because you're doing such extraordinary work you might be able to provide a little bit of illumination about that and uh, I'm very excited about that your books the obesity code and the new one the complete guide to fasting which is some of the most exciting stuff I've read in a while so I thought I'd start out by asking you um, how your focus as a nephrologist came to be on obesity in the first place
1: well I'm a kidney specialist, so the most important reason for kidney disease is type 2 diabetes. And for a lot of years, what we did, of course, was just treat that with a lot of medications, blood pressure medications and different medications. But ultimately, the, the solution to that problem of diabetic kidney disease is not through more medication, because obviously, if type 2 diabetes is causing the kidney disease, then the solution seems fairly obvious. You have to get rid of the type 2 diabetes. And the reason nobody thinks of it this way is that we get told that type 2 diabetes is kind of a chronic and progressive disease, but it's truly not. And we all know this, actually, because if you have a friend, for example, who gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and he comes back and says to you, well, you know, guess what? I lost 50 pounds. I stopped my diabetes medication and now my sugars are normal. So essentially he doesn't have diabetes anymore. Well, you'd probably say, you know, that's great, right? But what it means, of course, is that that type 2 diabetes was not chronic and not progressive. It was a reversible disease. So The reason that we don't think of it this way is because a lot of people try and convince us that it's kind of this chronic and progressive disease because they haven't been able to get people to lose weight consistently. So really, we get down to the fact that, okay, so kidney disease is caused by type 2 diabetes. You got got to get rid of the type 2 diabetes. If type 2 diabetes is caused by the obesity, then you got, got to get rid of the obesity. You got to make people lose weight in order to prevent the whole problem from developing in the first place. And it doesn't require medication. It requires kind of knowledge of how to do this. So that's how I came to the problem of obesity. And the issue is that I kind of looked at things from a different perspective, kind of from a from a diabetes perspective. And the thing is that I kind of looked at it differently because – There are new studies that were coming out on the whole low-carb versus uh, standard low-fat diets. And what they had shown by about 2008 or so, 2009, was that these diets that were low in carbohydrate were not all that dangerous. We all thought, of course, people's arteries would get all clogged up with all the high-fat, but it didn't show that at all. In fact, it showed that a lot of people were doing a lot better, and the weight loss was pretty good, too. So um, if... That was true then you have to think about the whole paradigm of obesity again because obviously it's not about calories right if carbohydrates restricted diets which were relatively high in calories because of all the fat could cause equal or better weight loss then calories is not really all that important Now
0: this is a very big fight right this is a very big argument that's been going on out there in the world of nutrition over the last few years is whether or not calories Yeah,
1: it is a big fight because there's so many people who will kind of close their minds and say, well, it's all about the calories. And they don't really think of it any more than that. But really, once you start to dig deep into this kind of caloric theory, because it's a hypothesis, nothing more, then you realize that there's really nothing to this hypothesis that is correct. I mean... We live in an era of evidence-based medicine. So the question is, what is the evidence that reducing calories will lead to weight loss? Well, there really isn't any. So here we have the most important medical problem of the last quarter century. And we're really recommending a diet based on zero evidence of efficacy.
0: Well, quite the opposite, I would argue I would I would argue that the, it's the opposite that it's not just that it has zero efficacy but that it's proven not to work and to probably make oh, yeah, obesity I would work as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was being generous <laughs> too I quite kind. agree I actually think that the, I actually that the balance of evidence shows that it's completely incorrect Um, But there are so many people kind of invested in this theory that they will kind of close their minds and say, well, you know, it's all about the calories. It's all about the calories, which doesn't make any sense at all, because, again, let's look at it from a logical standpoint. We've been recommending calorie reduced diets for about 50 years and the success rate's about like 1%, right? It's very, very, very low. And the proof is all around us, right? Every single person we know has done the caloric-reduced diet, and nobody's been able to lose weight on a consistent long-term basis. So the issue then is that if you try to sell something, a drug or whatever, with a 99% failure rate, well, you wouldn't get very far. But in nutrition science, what, what happens is that we prescribe a diet with about a 99% failure rate. And then when it fails, we say that, well, it's the patient's fault that they couldn't lose weight, right? We say that the advice is good, but you didn't follow it. You are, you know, you are lazy, you're a glutton, you're a sloth. And it's really, really unfair to people. So it's almost as if you have a class. Suppose you have a class of 100 people and one person fails, and the rest pass. Well, you say, well, that's probably the, the student's fault. But if you now have a class of 100 people and 99% – 99 people fail, it's not the student's fault. It's the teacher's fault, right? Right. And this is the problem, that what we've done in kind of this nutritional uh, – you know, all the sort of nutritional authorities and really all the people who are in charge of nutrition and obesity, all the real uh, people who set the agenda for the countries – they are part of these people who have given this really, really bad advice but can't really own up to the fact that their advice is a complete failure. So they keep blaming the patients for the failure of their advice when in truth their advice is bad because if 99% of people fail, that's bad advice. It has and I don't massive care social
0: implications, doesn't it? Because socially, the the fact that the medical industry has continued to blame the patient for the failure of the caloric balance hypothesis means that obesity has really stigmatized a whole, a growing group of people.
1: Well, exactly. And this is the uh, problem is that this impacts people's lives, right? As you get type 2 diabetes, as you develop blindness and all these uh, kidney failure heart attacks strokes people are dying from this bad advice and really if when you step back and look at it logically it's very very obvious that we have to get rid of this advice otherwise the people are going to suffer right and the people suffering are the ones getting blamed by all these professors and doctors and dietitians who continue to point the finger at them and say, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And it's it's absolutely atrocious, that sort of uh, attitude that these people have. And, and any time you try to uh, point this out or point out problems in the kind of energy balance hypothesis, well, people jump all over you and say, oh, this guy's crazy, right? It's all about calories, right? And the thing is that the body doesn't care about calories. Nothing in the body measures calories. So if you eat some, you know, uh, some, a pad of butter, which is pure fat, or something like sugar, like pure sugar, they could be the same calories. But the body wouldn't know that. It has no idea what the calories are because it doesn't respond to that. What happens when you put the food in your mouth is that your body responds with certain hormones. So there's differing hormones. When you eat fat, insulin doesn't really go up when you eat sugar, insulin does go up. So there's a huge difference in the hormonal response to different foods, even of the same calories. And that's really important because the body does care about what hormones, because that's instructions to the body to either gain fat or lose fat. So there's a huge difference, and it just doesn't care about those calories. So why people think calories matters is truly beyond me, because the body doesn't respond to it at all. Now, it has no receptors for it. The um,
0: the in fact, just to sort of go give one more thought about this whole issue of caloric balance, that was kind of slipped in in the second sort of the second half of the twentieth century because we were focused on um, low carbohydrate as a way of losing weight as a society prior to that. Uh, why did they move to calories and and stop the low starch diet? Well,
1: I think that there are a few things. One is that there is the whole thing about fat. So the whole issue about heart attacks and dietary fat got kind of blown up in the 60s and 70s. So there's a lot of people who believed that dietary fat was the cause of heart disease. And that's fine except that now you couldn't really have dietary fat being bad because it's clogging up your arteries or and good because it's not causing obesity, right? You can't have it both ways. It can't be good and bad at the same time. So because there was such a strong belief that dietary fat was bad, now all of a sudden you had to make dietary fat the cause of obesity as well. And the easiest way to do that was to say, well, it's very calorically dense, Right. So now you can make fat both bad for your heart, which turned out not to be true. And fat was the cause of obesity, which also wasn't true. But you could put them on the same page. Right. Right. So there was that. And then there was this whole idea uh, of calories, which the uh, soda companies and food companies loved, Because if you can convince people that it's calories that make you fat and not foods that make you fat, now all of a sudden you can sell your sugary snacks, your cookies and your crackers and your ice cream and said, Well, look, you can eat these calories of sugar and it will be the same as eating, you know, 100 calories of cookies is the same as eating 100 calories of broccoli. It's the same thing. They're equally fattening. It's like, okay, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right?
0: Yes, this led to, us to that the Twinkie t- diet.
1: Yeah, the Twinkie diet, which was a complete sham, right?
0: That was, <laughs> right, really that was really uh,
1: Yeah, so this, this story, in case people didn't know, was that this professor decided that he would take a diet of just Twinkies and other various uh, junk foods, Oreo cookies and all this sort of stuff. But he would limit his calories to 1,800 calories a day then he got on CNN and all these other big shows and says, look, I lost like 25 pounds on this Twinkie diet. Therefore, it's really all about calories. What he didn't say, which didn't come out until years later, like about you know five years later, was that the guy was paid by Coca-Cola. It's like, okay, nobody actually saw what he was doing. Nobody actually measured what he was doing. He just said that's what he was doing. And we took him at his word because we trusted him right? Because that sounds a lot better than some guy paid by Coke claims to have eaten a Twinkie diet and lost a lot of weight, right? right. But it got is a great story. Everybody loved the story. And people took him at his word and said, well, look, but there, it's all about calories, right? But no, of course not. And what you see is that all the time, right? All the studies that are funded by the sodas companies show that it's all about calories, right? Because that's a great marketing angle for but again, if you ask your grandmother, uh, "Hey, you know, can I eat cookies instead of broccoli?" she'd say no.
0: That's right. One of the things that I found fantastic about um, your book, *The Obesity Code*, is that although you were presenting uh, the whole story of uh, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia as um, the major issues underlying obesity you were also uh, and that hormonal theory of obesity or or of weight gain has been around for quite a while and it underpins the whole uh, method of eating a low carb diet but you pointed out that low carb um, which of course the Twinkie diet wasn't as well as low calorie Uh, diets just don't work in the long term because they are damaging our metabolism well those of us and i'm a person who has battled obesity personally uh, those of us who have had to battle obesity know that our metabolism is being gradually destroyed but there hasn't been a solution to that so uh, you really confronted this whole issue of what's happening with insulin and how that's affecting our body weight set point. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, nobody else has really addressed that head on the way you have.
1: Yeah. And this is the thing that is really important because, as you said, very few people talk about it. And it's that it's not simply the foods that we eat. Everything we do is really a reflection of two things, which is the foods that we eat and also the timing. And we seem to kind of ignore the timing as if it's not important, right? Whether you eat one meal a day or whether you eat 10 meals a day, as long as the calories all match up, it doesn't matter. But it's again, it's not true because the thing is that things are different when you when you have them all the time. For example, if you jump off a one-foot wall 100 times, it's far different than jumping off a 100-foot wall once, right? You could say, oh, it's all about the, the distance, but in one you die and the other one you don't, right? So there's a huge difference. And this gets back to one of the things that's always interesting to me, which is this time dependence, right? So obesity is very time dependent, which means that if you've been obese a long time, it's just harder for you to lose weight. Everybody knows that, right? Well, certainly obese
0: people know that. And I have to say that as someone who's been dealing with it for many years, that it, it just gets to a point where no matter what you do, you can have a small impact and then you don't have very much impact or you have no impact at all. Or even worse, you just get fatter when you try to deal with it and that's so common amongst people that I've spoken to uh, and it's why many people give up yeah, on and, and trying this to is lose the weight
1: the issue of insulin resistance. yeah and I think that's 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 very important because you have to any theory of obesity that you want to be taken seriously has to take that into account why is that right and this is this whole idea, which has been fleshed out for many years, of a body set weight. That is, your body seems to set this weight. And if you go above it, it'll try and bring it down. If you go below it, it'll try and bring it back up. And what is it that's important in setting this weight? Because if you think of it as a thermostat, right, like the thermostat for your house, if it gets too hot in the house, your your house turns on the air conditioning. If it gets too cold, it turns on the heat, right? But either way, it's a homeostatic mechanism, which means that it will return to its kind of original set weight. So this whole idea of cutting down your calories is ridiculous because if you simply don't adjust your body set weight and you bring your weight down, your body will bring it back up. Either it'll make you more hungry, which has been shown to happen, or it will reduce its metabolism, which also has been shown to happen. And that's why it doesn't really work. So calorie based ideas simply don't work because they take no, you know, they don't take into account this whole body set weight. So I think that the whole issue with body set weight has to do with insulin and insulin resistance, which are very heavily linked. And this is, where I kind of come at it from a more diabetes standpoint because you have to link in this whole idea of insulin resistance and how it applies to obesity. Because if you say that insulin is the most important thing that drives obesity, well, insulin resistance will drive up insulin and therefore cause obesity. So therefore, you have to know what causes insulin resistance. When it turns out that one of the most important causes of insulin resistance which is actually fructose, but also hyperinsulinemia. So if you become hyperinsulinemic for a long time, then your body simply becomes less responsive. So if you yell at somebody, like the boy who cried wolf, if you yell and you do it all the time, people become less responsive to it. So if insulin is high and yelling at you all the time, you become less responsive to it and that's normal.
0: So can I just pause there for a second and say, so just to capture the thought, and make it sure everybody understands it, what you're saying is long-term obesity is really a long-term state of chronic insulin resistance that's, that is treatable, but that hasn't been treated so far in the general approach to therapies for obesity.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's the insulin resistance that is really the key because Insulin resistance is going to cause the high insulin levels, which will drive obesity, independent of your diet, right? So even whatever diet you want to do, it will still keep the insulin levels high. So you have to understand what causes the insulin resistance. And there's two major factors in causing that insulin resistance. So if you eat a lot of highly refined carbohydrates and you eat them constantly, then what will happen is that you get high insulin all the time. That will lead to insulin resistance. So if you look at the change in diets from 1977 to 2005, which was the last NHANES survey in the United States, what has happened is that we've eaten a lot less fat and a lot more refined carbohydrates, which cause high insulin. And not only that, but we've eaten from three meals a day, we eat six meals a day. So we not only stimulate insulin very high, we keep it high all the time. So that's very important, but that's only one part of the story. So the other part of the story is that you can develop insulin resistance directly with fructose. So sugar, which is a combination of glucose and fructose, actually is not just bad as in empty calories. It's actually doubly as fattening as everything else because the glucose stimulates high insulin, which will lead to insulin resistance in the short term. The fructose will lead to fatty liver, which will lead to insulin resistance in the long term. So, in fact, you're actually hitting it from both sides, developing this insulin resistance, which is now setting your body weight, set weight higher and higher, which is why sugar is really so fattening. Because it's not the same as just eating a bagel.
0: I just wanna jump in again and say that because I've just done uh, the previous interview to this one with you um, is an interview with Dr. Robert Lustig. And we spent a lot of time talking about fructose and the effect of fructose uh, on the liver and particularly the fructose pathway. But what I found very enlightening about the work that you're doing is that you're actually highlighting the fact that fructose itself and its effect on the liver does increase insulin resistance or cause insulin resistance which tends not to be a part of the fructose story and this is very important because the fact that fructose is roughly half of sugar allows sugar to be uh to look low in terms of the glycemic index and so it's marketed as even when there is sugar it's marketed as a, a low glycemic Uh, solution for people's diets when in fact uh, because glycemic index has itself been marketed as a way to defeat insulin resistance. So I think this is a really critical point because fructose itself is increasing insulin resistance. So what that tells me is that sugar is actually confounding the whole story of low glycemic index as being a valuable um, tool for uh, overcoming insulin resistance.
1: Absolutely. Because if you take a 100% fructose sweetener, the glycemic index will be very, very low. Your blood sugars won't go up, your insulin won't go up, but you're going to suffer, right? And that's the whole story with that's high crazy. fructose corn syrup, right? It's got a little bit more fructose than sugar, but it's very similar. But you can't see it in the short term, right? You have to look in the long term, In terms of fatty liver insulin resistance, that's where it comes in and it's almost completely hidden. And that's the whole point. But everybody knows that sugar is fattening, right? Again, you can go back 100 years and you ask your grandmother what's causing people to eat whey and she'll say, you know, stop eating so much sugar. Stop eating candy, right? That's probably the first thing she would have said. And it would have not been anything to do with empty calories it would have been everything to do about cutting the fructose because glucose is found in a lot of things. So you can eat amylopectin, which is in bread and so on, uh, and potatoes and lots of starches. They're full of glucose. But everybody recognizes that that pure glucose somehow just what it, it's not great, but it's not as bad as the combination of glucose and fructose. The fructose seems to be especially bad for you, which Dr. Lustig very, very, uh, you know, very nicely pointed out a few years ago, right? And this is something that we have to kind of recognize, is that you can't see it in your usual measures. You can't see it in your measures of calories. You can't see it in your measures of insulin. You can't see it in your measures of glucose, glycemic index, or anything. But you know that that fructose is causing fatty liver. And the reason is that the metabolism is different, right? So if you eat pure glucose, what happens is that your body responds with a lot of, you know, your blood glucose goes up, your insulin goes up. But all the cells in your body can use that glucose, okay? So what happens is that your body is using it up. It's metabolizing it. So if it's metabolizing it, it's okay. So what happens with fructose is that no cells in the body can actually use that fructose. So if you take sugar, You have equal parts glucose and fructose, but the glucose is metabolized by the entire body, which is, for example, 170 pounds, but the fructose is only metabolized by about five pounds of liver, right? Nothing else in your body can metabolize that fructose, and that fructose gets turned into fat, and therefore you get fatty liver, which causes a lot of insulin resistance which drives your insulin levels high, but it's not just high sometimes. It's high all the time, so it's causing that kind of obesogenic uh, you know, environment, and it's making everything worse. So the fructose is much, much, much worse for you, and the only way you can see that is by understanding how insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, all you know, go together in the development of obesity. And that's what we talked about in the obesity code, which is it's not simply about the insulin, which is why it's simply not about just the carbohydrates, right? Because if you're talking about insulin being the main driver of obesity, you have to remember that there's a lot of things that will impact the insulin levels and not simply the carbohydrates. So your meal timing will be important, your dietary fats, your incretins, your proteins... Uh, there 's so many different things, fiber, but the big one is insulin resistance right and that 's how it all ties together and that 's how the, how this kind of diabetes crisis kind of ties together
0: what now many of us um out there in the world uh, have watched other people remove sugar from their diets and go low carb and lose stacks of weight while uh, some of us can go sugar free and our weight will remain stable and uh, for many people their weight will just continue to increase even when they've gone sugar free and usually for those people they have got long-term obesity um so that's the set point kicking in so um Putting everything together from what you've written, it seems to me that what you've uh, come across as a, a great way of resetting that set point up is to actually introduce fasting as uh, as a way. I, I, I can't really wrap the words around. Um, it's it's really healing your liver, I guess, in many ways.
1: Yeah, what the fasting is simply the most efficient way of lowering insulin levels, right? So remember that insulin resistance depends on two things mostly. Well, there's fructose, but if you're not eating, you're not getting any fructose. But it depends on high insulin levels and the persistence of those insulin levels, right? So what you need to do is not simply reduce those levels, but you need to keep them low for a long period of time to reset that kind of sensitivity, right? So so this is the thing. So, again, if you go back to the boy who cries wolf, if he cries wolf and he cries wolf again and again and again, you stop listening. If he stops for like two seconds and then starts again, you still don't listen to him, right? What he has to do is stop and keep, keep it off for a long time. Then when he starts crying wolf, then people will start listening again, right? And that's the same thing with insulin. Insulin, if it's high and stays high, You can't just drop it for two seconds and push it back up and imagine that everything is okay. Your body is still very insulin resistant. you got to drop it and keep it low. And this is the point. That's why you want to have long periods of low insulin. And that's what fasting does. It lowers your insulin levels maximally, and it keeps it there for as long as you are fasting, right, because nothing else is going to push it up. So this is the idea that has been around for thousands of years, right? It's not a new idea. It's actually the oldest idea in the book. You can take the word breakfast and look at it and say it's the meal that breaks your fast. What it means is that you need to be fasting every single day, right? You can't break your fast if you're not fasting. So fasting is only the flip side of eating, and they have to be balanced you got to balance your feeding and your fasting. Otherwise, you're going to gain weight. That's not so hard to understand. If you start eating from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed, you're almost always in feeding mode and you have no fasting. Your body has no chance to pull out that stored energy. Because remember, when you eat, insulin goes up. Insulin tells your body to store some of that food energy. Okay? When you sleep and you don't eat, insulin goes down. You pull it back out. And burn it for energy. If those two fall out of balance, then you're telling your body to store fat, store food energy all the time, and you're giving it no time to burn the food energy that you've taken. So guess what? You're going to gain weight.
0: So that this what this happened. really speaks to um, a very interesting thing because uh, I watched a, a a video of yours, a lecture you were giving in which you presented a chart showing the the trend of uh, reducing metabolism of the um, biggest loser contestants and so those people I would imagine were not eating, uh, they were eating a low calorie diet and they probably weren't eating a lot of carbs, but they, would, they wouldn't have been fasting. So my presumption is that, as you say, it's not just about uh, the insulin resistance, it's about the, uh, the fact that there's always insulin in your body. So it, that was simply low-calorie dieting with insulin constantly present in their bl- blood, and their metabolism was dropping
1: away. Yeah, absolutely, because what happens is that they clearly were not able to adjust their set weight down, right? Their set weight, for whatever reason, you you know you can, you can give come up with many theories, but the bottom line is that their set weight stayed high. So now their body weight, so suppose their set weight is at 250 pounds and they drop down to 180. Now their body says, wow, you need to be at 250 pounds. So, what happens? It makes them hungry, which is what happens, but they're very strong in willpower, so they don't eat. So, the body says, Whoa, you know, I want to be at 250 pounds, and you're not eating enough for me to get back up there. What can I do? Well, you start shutting down the body. So, their basal metabolic rate just dropped like a stone. It went down like 700 calories, something like that. So they're burning 700 less calories every single day in order for that weight to go back up. So this slowdown of the basal metabolic rate, which some people have termed starvation mode, is guaranteed to happen when you follow a caloric-restricted diet, a calorie-reduced diet. right? So if you follow the strategy of caloric reduction as your primary goal, so what I call caloric restriction as primary, that is guaranteed to slow down your metabolism because all the studies have shown it. The Biggest Loser showed it. You can go back 100 years, and it showed the same thing. You can take somebody, cut their calories by a third, and their metabolism will slow down by a third. The Ansel Keys starvation study was not a fasting study. It was not a starvation study. It was a caloric reduction study. They took people, they reduced their calories by about 40%, and guess what? their metabolism slowed down by about 40%. And you're not going to win that way. So the question is how I mean, you do you have
0: to keep, you actually have to keep reducing forever, reducing calories to not regain all the weight you would have to forever keep re- having fewer and fewer calories until you got down to nothing.
1: Right. But you can't, because and remember you can't. what happens when you go down by 700 calories, is that your body is slowing down, your heart rate is slowing down, you're feeling cold, you have no energy, you feel like crap, you feel really sluggish, all you want to do is sleep. That's because you're not burning enough energy. Because your body, your insulin resistance is high, your insulin levels are high, your body still wants to store all that energy. right? You're not able to release that energy from the fat stores. So you you would have to keep going down, but it's impossible. That's why at some point something breaks, everything goes back, and weight is regained and all that. So the question really is how do you lose weight without causing the basal metabolic rate slowdown or the quote-unquote starvation mode? And the answer is very interesting because if you look at actual starvation, which is zero food, which is merely the – fasting is merely the controlled version of starvation. You don't have that basal metabolic rate slowdown. So actual starvation does not cause starvation mode, and that's what's really interesting. So if you look at studies of fasting, you can fast for four days straight. Your basal metabolic rate on the fourth day is 10% higher than it was at the beginning. This is
0: so important! I just can't stress to people how important that is that fasting increases your metabolic rate because everybody lives in terror Uh, and that, you know, I include myself and you're talking to a person who, right now, uh, in 2010 I did intermittent fasting for at least five to seven days for the ho per fortnight for the whole of the year and lost a significant amount of weight, so I'm pretty uh, knowledgeable about intermittent fasting. But that was a five hundred calorie fast, which I think is a little different from what you recommend as the op- optimum. Um,
1: there's an optimum you, you can do very well with those five hundred calorie uh I did do well days. I mean it's there's a continuum obviously But at some point, your body uh, goes more into the fasting mode, which is, you know, this is where people get the wrong idea because they think that fasting is really about cutting calories, but it's not. It's about switching fuel sources, about keeping that insulin level low. Because what happens is that your body simply goes, okay, I have no food. If I slow down my metabolic rate, then, if suppose you're a caveman and your body and you just have no energy, you'll never go out and hunt that rabbit again, right? So you're gonna die. So the body's just not that stupid, right? So what it does is it simply takes your your normal metabolic rate and switches your fuel source from food to stored food, which is fat. And guess what? There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way we're built. This is the way animals are: lions, tigers, bears, and humans too we can survive these. So because you're switching now over to fat, assuming that you have a significant amount of body fat and you're not, you know, anorexic or malnourished or underweight, your body will say, okay. In which case
0: I would suggest you would recommend that anyone who's not overweight avoid fasting?
1: Well, of course. I mean, it's Mm. it's just common sense, right? If you eat those nutrients, you need those nutrients. You don't want to stop But the thing is that your body now has fat as fuel, and it says, I need 2,000 calories to burn. And you're like, here, here you go. There's 2,000 calories. So what we tell people to do is imagine that during your fast, imagine instead that you're not fasting. You're simply eating a meal of your body fat. Well, that's really what's happening, right? Your body now pulls out the equivalent number of calories, and you burn it. And that's all. But that's exactly what you want to do because your body is able to release the energy from the fat stores, you're not going to slow down your metabolic rate. Why would you? There's tons of this stuff, right?
0: And theoretically, you're increasing your metabolic rate as you do this.
1: So absolutely. And again, you can look at studies directly comparing. So there are studies of alternate daily fasting. So over 70 days of fasting, the resting metabolic rate doesn't change again. If you look at the biggest loser studies that were recently done, what was really fascinating was that uh, everybody dropped their metabolic rate significantly, except for one guy, right? And this one guy had decided to get bariatric surgery, which is basically, uh, you know, you get severe restriction in how much you can actually eat. And what happened to his metabolic rate? It actually shot right back up. So that's really fascinating. So there's something completely different when you drop your calories ultra low. I'm not talking, you know, 1,500, 1,400 calories, but to like 500, 400 calories. There's something different there because now your insulin levels are low enough that you can actually start to access your fat stores. And that's what's really fascinating about that. So his metabolic rate went back up, and then his weight started to drop because – now your body is burning this energy, right? It's burning all this fat. So it's fascinating because what it showed is that what you need to do is have periods of very low intake. And again, it goes back to these ideas that have been here with us forever, right? The the idea of breaking your fast, the idea you need to fast every day. And when it was not a part of kind of natural life, you had – All of our kind of thought leaders, that is, people like religious leaders, such as the Prophet Muhammad and Jesus Christ and Buddha, who would now tell their practitioners that they need to fast. That's fascinating. It is. It's amazing. Um, It's amazing. Because because what, what, what you have is this realization that fasting is deeply and intrinsically beneficial to us, so much so that we need to tell people to make sure to schedule it into their you know, month or year, or whatever, Ramadan or you know Lent or whatever it is, that it has to be prescribed in order for you to stay healthy. That's
0: I watched in, in 2015, I watched with just amazement as you worked with Jimmy Moore and he embarked on a series of fasts which initially frightened me because because i come from that Uh, intermittent fasting where I I truly believed you shouldn't fast for more than a day at a time because I believed that if you fasted for more than one day at a time that you would go into starvation mode which you have proven in in your work is not the case and I watched Jimmy Moore really transforming physically in in such a, a positive way he was dropping weight he was um He seemed like he was filled with extra energy. He was in a good mood. Now, I know fasting is is great for that. I have to tell you that uh, in the year that I uh, did intermittent fasting for the whole year, my great days were my fasting days. And I came to realize that food was making me, it wasn't just making me fat, it was making me sick. And it's what sort of sent me on this pathway to Uh, try and um, heal the things that we are eating because I realized that food something in the food wasn't just food there was a lot of other stuff going on there uh, because I was getting sick when I ate and I felt fantastic when I didn't eat which amazed me but um, what what you've really achieved I think is this notion that you can fast for more than one day you can fast for a number of days at a time and you will lose fat and you really won't be losing muscle mass which is a big part of the fear you won't go into starvation mode because starvation mode as you have put it is actually that's low calorie dieting is starvation mode fasting is not starvation mode and you won't go into starvation mode
1: yeah, and that's the real key. So it's, it, it was interesting to see these people doing the long fast because, again, there's a continuum, right? If you're underweight, then, yes, you don't want to fast and you want to eat, right? But on the other hand, if you're on that obese end of the spectrum, then, yes, you can fast and it will be okay. And that's the idea. Like, we get uh, kind of brainwashed by a lot of people. And, again, it's it's weird because we live in an era where we pretend that we follow evidence-based medicine. So what's interesting is that people will say, you can't fast. And I'm like, why? You're going to starvation mode. I'm like, where's your evidence? There is none, right? Oh, you're going to burn muscle. Where's your evidence? There is none, of course, right? Uh, You're going to like die, right? It's like, where's your evidence, right? It's like, come on. These things that, you know, are so obvious. That is, if you want to lose weight, don't eat for a while. Right. Super, super obvious
0: is what's the These best things... process for fasting is in your opinion. And how long can you fast all at once?
1: Well, they the longer fasts, of course, are more powerful, but they are more risky. So there's things called refeeding syndromes. You, you put yourself at higher risk of vitamin nutrition uh, deficiencies, for example, although taking a multivitamin will generally uh, get rid of that problem. There really is no best way. So intermittent fasting, where you do, say, 24 hours at a time, is a very good way of losing weight. Um, it really depends on what you like, what your schedule is, and what you like. If Some people love these long fasts because they really feel energized on them. They feel really good. And if you like it, then do it. Other people feel terrible. They think it's, like, the worst thing they've ever done. They can do them. Like, they, they won't, like, do poorly, but they don't like it. So for those people, they shouldn't do it because they don't like it. So they should do shorter fast. You can get the benefits. There's so many different ways to get to your goal. And that's the whole thing that I talk about in the obesity code is that it's not one single problem, right? There's lots of different problems and lots of different solutions. And the idea is that if you have a car that doesn't start, you could have different things wrong. you fan belt could be broken, or you could be out of gas. The problem is that there are people who will yell at you and say, oh, you gotta fill up on gas, because uh, I did that, I filled up on gas, my car ran fine. But if your fan belt is broken, or your spark plugs are done, filling up on gas isn't gonna do anything for you, right? On the other hand, then you have the people on the other side, oh, you gotta fix your fan belt. And then they're like, because when I fixed my fan belt, my car worked fine, but then if you're out of gas, it doesn't work for you, right? So there's different problems that lead to obesity, and there's different solutions. So fasting is one solution. Fasting has infinite flexibility. So you can do it any time you want. There's You can do whatever, right? But there's no right answer for you. But you don't have to fast. You can use low-carbohydrate diets. You can use ketogenic diets. You can use different things, but you have to recognize what it is, the factors that are important, which is the what to eat, but also the when to eat, And then see how you can adjust those because there's other things like vinegar, there's fiber. There's different ways because you can still eat a high-carbohydrate diet and still have low insulin levels. So if you look at the studies from China in the 1990s, for example, they ate a lot of white rice and there was no obesity, right? But what was it? They didn't eat all the time. They ate one or two meals a day because they're out working all the time. They uh, ate almost no sugar, right? And that's where the fructose is super, super important because if you look at the Japanese diet, lots of rice, but the traditional Japanese diet has almost no sugar. So same thing. You can eat a lot of carbohydrates but still have a low insulin level and do well. The Okinawans ate like 85% carbohydrate diets, all sweet potato. They're like one of the blue zones. They're one of the people who live the longest in the world, right? High-carbohydrate diet. So it, you have to look at uh, the real the problem of obesity. It's about hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, not specifically about carbohydrates uh, or fats or protein because there's good fats and bad fats, right? Yeah. There's good proteins and bad proteins, good carbs and bad carbs. There's a lot of stuff, but what really drives obesity is the insulin, the insulin resistance. So you can play with all those different things and with the fasting, because remember, fasting is the flip side of eating. You can't ignore it. It's like 50% of the problem. And that's why so many diets fail, is that you kind of ignore 50% of the problem. And then you futz around with uh, what should you eat, what should you not eat, this and that. It's like, well, hey, why don't you just eat nothing for a while? I just it's not um... all the time.
0: I want to just sort of, uh, just sort of as we start to finish up here, uh, come down to that thought of snacking because snacking, sort of the three meals a day, which really came about, I think, as a result of the Industrial Revolution and training people to eat in between their eight hour shifts or 12, you know, 10 hour shifts. Um, So we, we gained this regimented form of eating. And then in the uh, 20th century the marketers really were looking for eating occasions that they could sell their uh, yeah. snack foods processed snack foods into so this notion and the, the whole thought of calories as the, the Measurement really played beautifully into that as you said because um, now they could say well It's you know just a small low-calorie snack. It's not going to do you any harm It helps get you through the day Uh, As a marketer, I know this very well, we spend a lot of time, uh, uh, and I have spent a lot of my time in my life uh, working on snacking occasions, Uh, but you are very adamant that snacking is a big problem, and it's, it's one of the first things that people need to do is stop snacking.
1: Absolutely, and what you need to do is, just again, you can go back to the 1950s and 60s, right? They're eating white bread, they're eating Oreo cookies, right? There's no whole wheat pasta. It's all white pasta. But there's no obesity because they're eating three meals a day. And when I was growing up, if you tried to get a snack after school, it would be like, no. One, there's no snacks in the house, so there's nothing to eat anyway. And two, people would say, you're going to ruin your dinner. You know, these bedtime snacks and snack here, snack there, none of it, right? None of it. You eat when you eat, and when you don't eat, you don't eat. That's the point. And we've kind of merged that based on, I think, a lot of marketing, as you said. And again, you live in an, we live in an age where we pretend to be following evidence-based medicine. And where's the evidence that eating all the time makes us thin? I mean, that sounds like the stupidest idea ever. Eat all the time to get thin. But you have doctors who tell you this, right? And now I think that they're completely wrong. But there's no evidence that says eating all the time makes you thin. Right. It was uh, just It's somebody just counterintuitive, who's... isn't it? Yeah. But if people repeat it enough, it gets the kind of sheen, the veneer of truth. Right. And then you have doctors who are, you know, not smart enough to understand that that doesn't make any sense at all, repeating it. So some of the people that, are, you know, are very influential in obesity, they say all this stuff like, carb meals, follow the food pyramid, eat all the time, eat six times a day. It's like, why would you eat six times a day? In the 70s, when there was no obesity, we ate three times a day. Now when there's a lot of obesity, we eat six times a day. Why would you want to stay to six times a day? Like That doesn't make any sense at all. I'd rather go back to three times.
0: Uh, Just the very last thought I want to capture with you is the issue of sweetness. Because um, obviously we've moved in the direction of increasing sweetness in in all of our foods. Um, And you actually, in the obesity code, talk about the fact that sweeteners, non-caloric sweeteners, are actually giving us an insulin response as well. So synthetic sweeteners and other sweeteners are also contributing to obesity.
1: I think they're just the same as sugar. You might as well drink the sugary drink if you're because, again, let's look at it logically. If sweeteners, by being low in calories, um, are going to make us thin, then we would all be thin. We wouldn't be talking about this obesity epidemic. We wouldn't even talk about obesity because the problem would have been solved, right? We would all eat sweeteners. We would all eat that fake fat, and we'd all be slender, right? It didn't happen. So therefore, you have to say, that those sweeteners didn't do anything. There was no benefit from changing out from a sugared Coke to a non-sugared Coke, right? And I think it's because there's lots of reasons that people theorize. I think there's the insulin problem, but I think also that it's a problem if if you're getting sweet all the time, it's probably stimulating your appetite. You know how you have appetizers to make you more hungry, that's the whole point, right? It's that kind of introduction. And I I was recently, I'm recently getting over a cold, right? It's very interesting because I've been popping like cough candies and chewing gum like crazy because I'm, uh, you know, I was kind of hacking my brains out. And the thing is that what was very interesting to me personally was that I'm taking all these cough drops and stuff. And you know how there's a lot of sweeteners in those and um, sugar-free gum and all this kind of stuff. I really, like normally I fast two, three times a week and that's just my habit and I find it very easy. I couldn't do it at all. Like I'd start chewing gum and I'd get these severe cravings to eat something. And then it's like, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously it's a short-term experiment, but I thought it was very interesting that by chewing this gum and taking these sweet cough drops, um, which, you know, stimulates saliva. So it was going down my throat. So it was making my cough better, but it it, it was really making me hungry. Right. So
0: that's like exactly, really you're getting understand. an insulin response.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's the kind of cephalic response that you get. And then it's very hard to resist having something to eat. Now, in my case, I'm okay because one, it's a very limited response. Two, I know exactly what's happening. But if you don't know what's happening and you're taking these. Sugar-free gums, and you're taking these things, and you're taking these sweet things, and then you're making your brain want more. Then it's a problem. Then you can't not eat. It's difficult, right? Whereas if you never take any of that, you're just drinking herbal teas and so on, you're gonna like fly right through, and you'll not even understand why you completely derailed because pe- the the calorie people convinced you that the sweeteners were fine. They're not fine. If they were the answer. We would all be slender, right? We eat tons of that, that aspartame and stevia and all that stuff. We eat tons of it. It's not good. Now, if you use it and are doing well, then I say, hey, who am I to talk to you about it, right? Obviously, you're doing well. Keep doing But if you're using it and not doing well, that's one of the things that you should really consider stopping. Because I think in my own personal experience in the last couple of weeks, I think it's actually very difficult. I I actually couldn't fast uh, at all for that week. I said, wow, this is crazy. But, you know, I don't have a lot of weight to lose and I'm not that concerned because I know I can do it next week and so on. Right. Um, So it wasn't a big deal for me. But as a a kind of understanding of what these sort of uh, chemicals do to us, I actually thought it was interesting because I never eat that much uh, sweeteners. But it was just this, you know, this. This last week was just terrible for me. So,
0: yes, they absolutely do cause hunger. I'm a big believer in moving to a, a low sweetness and re- retraining our palate to enjoy less sweetness overall. Dr. Jason Fung, I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has just been so enlightening. And I also want to say that the obesity code is. Probably the most important book I've read on the issue of of obesity in many, many years. Uh, And The Complete Guide to Fasting, The Complete Guide to Fasting is really, uh, I think, the essential accompaniment to, to the Obesity Code because it gives you the tools to be able to implement all of the thinking that you laid out in the first book and enables particularly people, I think, with long-term obesity to actually have the tools to start to um, to defeat it. And uh, uh, I have to say myself, I'm going to be um, uh, trying your fasting processes come January after the feasting is over. Right. <laughs> so
1: That's my plan too. <laughs> so thank
0: you so much for joining me.
1: Well, thanks for having me. This is great.
0: I'm Melody Patterson Metta. I'm Melody Patterson Metta is reinventing and this the supermarket. Is reinventing yes. the supermarket.